Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. From the Webby Awards, I'm David Michelle Davies. This is the Webby Podcast. Justice, oppression, social media equals revolution. Enough red, enough blue, purple. Hey, welcome back. The political divide between the proverbial left and right has deepened in the age of social media. But our next guest for this episode, Webby Award winner, CNN political commentator, and social justice crusader Van Jones is working to change that with his new book, Beyond the Messy Truth. During last year's election cycle, he launched The Messy Truth with Van Jones, a viral online miniseries to highlight how social media has created echo chambers that prohibit conservatives and liberals from understanding one another. His follow-up, Beyond the Messy Truth, is a necessary book outlining how we can move beyond siloed media, divisive memes, toxic news feeds, and move towards progress. In order to understand Van's drive to create social change through technology and empathy, you need to understand his background, and we get into that, which led to a deeper conversation on what issues he's discovered during his civil rights work and what solutions we can implement to create a brighter tomorrow. I was born in 1968, which is uh, the year that they killed Dr. King and they killed Bobby Kennedy. And they uh, really tried to wipe out hope in America, you know, beat up a lot of young people protesting for peace. And, um, you know, I was born on the edge of a rural, a a small town in in rural West Tennessee. And, um, yeah, my dad had been a cop in the military. Both my parents were were educators. So I I grew up in that kind of, you know, post-60s kind of hopeful moment and, ran, you know, smashed into the 90s when I got out of law school. You had Rodney King, and they were building prisons everywhere. And we were in a really, really, I think, difficult moment. People have kind of really polished up the 90s to make it seem like this really great uh, period. But if you were African-American in an urban environment, you know, they were cutting back on affirmative action. They were, you know, taking away uh, that opportunity for for advance. The big prison building boom was in the 1990s. We went from having a million people to two million behind bars. And being a student at Yale Law School, um, I noticed that the kids at Yale were doing drugs, and they weren't going to, to prison. They were best, best they were going to rehab at worst. Um, but the kids two or three blocks away who were doing drugs and housing projects, projects were going to prison for long periods of time. So I was on the, when I left law school at 24 years old, I was on the left side of Pluto. I was <laughs> as far left as you could possibly get, um, and uh, spent you know a good decade or so. Um, really trying to to fight injustices uh, in the police, uh, in law enforcement, and in the prison system. And um, it's funny. I first started using technology back in those days. We had a a relational computer database, which at the time was really fancy stuff, man, uh, to track problem officers and problem precincts and problem practices in the San Francisco Bay Area. And we wound up um, getting the, the Bar Association of California 
to license my little not-for-profit to coordinate litigation on um, police brutality, police misconduct. And uh, in so doing, we built this big, massive um, <clears throat> relational computer database on on bad cops and, and got a really terrible police officer fired, helped to reform the San Francisco Police Department. And um, that was that was my 20s. Where and, was uh, the where was the information that was going into the database coming from? Is that from we had a yeah. hotline, believe okay. it or not. Back in those days, people had these things called telephones and right. they would pick them up and they would push buttons and then they would call usually the ACLU or the NAACP, and those people would then refer them over to us because there were so many calls coming in. We, you know, we, they, it really was a need for a specialized uh, service, and we were providing it. And as a result of that work, by the time I was uh, 29 years old, I had won the International uh, Human Rights Award from Reebok uh, for my— I think I'm probably still the only person in the, in the history of the, of the planet that has ever gotten— uh, a, a human rights award, a global human rights award for fighting police misconduct inside the U.S. And so, yeah, that was that was that was what I, that was my claim to fame in my twenties. And the right wing has made a big uh, stink about it from time to time. But I think uh, you know I'm proud that the guy I was 20, 30 years ago was willing to take a Yale law degree and go out there and try to represent some of the poorest people against some of the biggest um, opponents. And, um, you know, but also, you know, you, you do that work for a while. You, you burn out pretty, pretty, pretty thoroughly. Uh, I went to a lot of funerals. I went to a lot of, um, you know, coalition meetings that fell apart with infighting. And I, I, had, I had to, at some point, try to find a, another way to contribute and uh, discovered that uh, fighting for things I actually wanted as opposed to fighting against the stuff I didn't want suited me better, and I wound up uh, being able to, to create a program called Green for All, bringing uh, ecologically positive jobs and solutions and contracts to the hood. And, um, and that uh, is where, really where I, uh, I think I found my true calling. But uh, I'm, I'm proud that I spent a, a good 10 years before that uh, as a quintessential angry young man trying to take on the powers that be. I learned a lot that way. How did how did you get involved and interested in the green movement or you know uh, environmental science in that part uh, of your life? Well, you know, I think you know most people are probably environmentalists at some level. I mean, I've yet to meet the person who says, you know, I hate bunnies and trees and sunshine. You know, like I haven't right. met that person. If I met that person, I'd probably run away. I think most people, you know, care about this stuff. They just it's just not number one on their list. I, I looked at it from the point of view, look, I've been working to get, um, you know, kids out of jail and into jobs in urban America for a while. Um, the best jobs, from my point of view, would be jobs that honored the principle that we don't have any throwaway neighborhoods or th- any throwaway kids, but also we don't have any throwaway resources. We don't have a throwaway planet either. And to me, fighting pollution and poverty at the same time by getting uh, urban youth trained to put up solar panels getting urban youth trained to to build community gardens, to retrofit and weatherize houses so they don't waste so much energy. I said, this is a great solution because you can you can do something good for the for, for the planet. You can also do something good for people. And you're you're bringing these new technologies, solar and 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 wind and all the stuff, and yet you're creating jobs for people. And so I just I got uh, excited at Oakland. We created something called the Oakland Green Jobs Corps, and we got the Oakland City Council to put money up so we could start training young people to take these jobs. 
And then Nancy Pelosi, this is back in like 2007, I guess, and Nancy Pelosi found out about it. She had just become Speaker of the House. She was thrilled that this was an idea that could could bridge business, it could bridge labor, it could bridge environmentalists, it could bridge anti-poverty, it could could bridge civil rights. She said, listen, let's take uh, your idea, let's go to Washington, D.C., let's get a bill passed, which she was able to get passed, called the Green Jobs Act of 2007, and a guy named George W. Bush actually signed the bill. And so suddenly my little program I started in Oakland is now spread all across the country. I wrote a book about that in 2008 called The Green Collar Economy, um, and it became a, a bestseller. It's in six languages. It's in 100 U.S. universities last year. But a guy named Barack Obama apparently read the book, and suddenly um, I got a chance to go and help him for the first six months of his administration to implement a lot of this stuff at the national level. Yeah, so you were appointed the special advisor to green jobs in 2009, right at the beginning of the Obama administration. And I want to ask you about this time because I think it's just so interesting in that this is like, you know, for the most of the world, this is probably only a year or maybe six months after Twitter started getting popular. Service has probably been around for about two years then. Um, and the Obama administration is really one of the first administrations to st- really start using social media to communicate with people and advance an agenda. It just seems like you must have had uh, an incredible sort of front row seat into how uh, politicians and how the government and, and how uh, policy was going to start to be formed uh, through this lens of social media. Could you talk about that a bit? Twitter was really not a big deal. I mean, I, I got um, Time Magazine named me one of the 100 most influential people in the world uh, in 2009, and I got a chance to go to the um, the big gala that they have for those uh, recipients. And they trotted up there to the front, at the beginning of the thing, uh, the founders of Twitter, which I I think I'd heard of, but I didn't understand what it was. And then, they, I mean, it was such a, a new thing. It's like, look at these crazy kids with this Twitter thing. And then they had them... Uh, tweet something. Uh, as, it was like as a part of the show. Look, these people are going to tweet something. Wow, they tweeted something. And we're sitting there saying, what is this? We don't even have any idea what they're talking about. And I think at that point, Obama might have had like 500,000 Twitter followers. I mean, it was, right. it was very, very new. What was clear, though, was that Obama had, like all great leaders, figured out a way to use the communications tools and technology of his time to uh, to get an advantage, you know, FDR uh, was a, considered a lightweight. He was a nobody, you know, his, his you know famous relative, but he wasn't really taking that seriously. But he mastered radio, and he became a dominant figure. JFK was also taken very lightly compared to you know Richard Nixon, who had been vice president for you know two terms and was this kind of world figure. But JFK understood television, and he was able to break through and become a significant figure. Obama understood what we used to call the Internet. Um, he, you know, raising money online was at that time unheard of. Yeah. You know, Howard Dean in 2004 had been able to raise some money online. People thought that was a really big deal. But at that time, you know, it was still a big donor game. And Obama came in. He was able to raise tons of money online. That was a huge breakthrough in 2008. The other thing that Obama was able to do, he, you know, these viral videos— People forget, even YouTube was not that big a deal, I think, until 2006. The 2004 campaign, you know, John Kerry versus George W. Bush, there was no YouTube. Yeah. Um, you know, there was Jib Jab, which was like the only way you could have something, you could watch 
some uh, animation online without having to download the file. But except for JibJab, which was quite mar marginal, there was no YouTube. It was 2006 midterm where somebody videotaped, uh, I think George Allen or somebody, calling somebody Makaka. And it was posted on something called YouTube. I'd never heard of Makaka or YouTube in 2006. Hmm. So it's very, very hard for people to remember that in 2008, Obama having these videos, like, you know, Will I Am's, you know, uh, you know, video uh, going viral. That was a huge deal. Raising money online, huge deal. And so, and then by 2009, Twitter is just starting to creep in. Donald Trump is the master of, the, of truly social media when it comes to Twitter and also reality television. Those two uh, innovations in communications, reality TV and social media, uh, Donald Trump figured out, if I say crazy stuff, I get more Twitter followers. There's no such thing as a gaffe anymore. And if I can be the villain, um, the villain is always the hero or, or the star in social media. You know, Simon on American Idol is always, you know, the one everybody right. talks about, even though he's the biggest jerk on American Idol. So he had real insight into how to use these these new modalities. And, uh, and that's really, I think, a, a key to his success. Well, do you think there's a... Do you think there's a point at which, because you just described a lot of, well, maybe except for Simon, but you described some of the things that were really aspirational about social media, you know, the ability to connect with large audiences and raise money and hopefully raise smaller donations. And that whole movement felt uh, at the time, you know, just really wonderful. And it felt like a great expression of democracy. You've talked a lot about, though, how now we're using a lot of these platforms to sort of put ourselves in these information echo chambers, right? That now we're only following people we know and we're only listening to these facts that we already agree with and we no longer have this sort of sense of shared knowledge that we can at least use to you know to debate and have actual real cohesive arguments do you is there a point at which during that time you sort of saw that shift i think we've all seen it over you know the past you know 8 9 years um you know i, I wrote this book called beyond the messy truth uh, how we came apart and how we come together and you know New York Times bestseller and all that kind of stuff, because I think a lot of people are just baffled by how did we get this divided this thoroughly so that you literally, you can't, you almost cannot have a conversation with, with somebody who you don't agree with politically, because it's not that you can't agree on the conclusions. You've never been able to agree on all the conclusions in a democracy. We can't even agree on the assumptions. We can't agree on the basic kind of fact set uh, from which to have the discussion. And I think that that has to do with a lot of it has to do with um, with technology. I um, am a dad. I have you know two uh, young sons, and they told me that you know Twitter is kind of played out and it's all about Instagram and Snapchat. I couldn't figure out Snapchat to save my life, but I got on Instagram. And on Instagram, uh, you know, I, I you know, followed a couple of you know good liberals that I liked, and then I you know followed some more. And they kept suggesting, you know, more and more people to follow. And you know, I wound up following. 200, 300 people, all liberals, right. at the suggestion of the app itself. And then for about two weeks, I thought, you know, Instagram is just great. It's just amazing. <laughs> I love Instagram because everything on here is just, you know, wonderful and funny and it's just, you know, making Trump look terrible. And then I realized, you know what? If the first two people I had followed had been conservatives, I probably would have a completely different feed. And so I deliberately tried to hack and break my own algorithm. I searched deliberately for white nationalist, searched deliberately for pro-Trump, for conservative, for right-wing. And I, then I followed about 100 of those people or more. 
you know, now my feed is just terrible because there's all this <laughs> stuff in it that I don't really ordinarily think I want to see. But over the past couple of months, my understanding of what's going on in the country has gotten a lot deeper because in real time, I get a chance to see literally dueling, you know, memes and dueling posts. And frankly, sometimes the right wing gets us dead to rights on some bit of hypocrisy or something that we haven't, you know, been, you know, forthright about. And it's it's put me in this weird situation where I feel like I'm walking between the bubbles now. And um, and I think I encourage more people to do that. I talked to one of the top people at Twitter. I said, you guys, should, you know, don't complain about Donald Trump or anybody else or the dysfunction in D.C. You know, if you if, if you, after the hundredth liberal somebody follows, can't you just suggest, you know, perhaps maybe you might follow a moderate or a conservative or something? I mean, you guys are driving the division as much as anybody else. And most people, they don't even realize, like I, I tell people, don't believe your feed. Right. Distrust your feed because all it's done is taking your biases and taking them out to the to the infinite power and now you're in you're in a feedback loop of yourself. You're drinking your own pee water. This is not <laughs> healthy. Do not trust your feed. But uh, but the, but the thing about getting uh, the Webby award uh, for the messy truth uh, is that what nobody knew at the time I did that on my own. Yeah. Um, you know, I didn't have a, a a role at CNN that would allow me to go out and shoot my own stuff and produce my own stuff. So I literally, I just went out and I got, you know, a, a camera crew of guys that, uh, and a couple of women that I knew. And we just went out to the red states and, and just shot it and put it up on, on our my, my Facebook page. Yeah. And it got a million views uh, over the course of a weekend. And, you know, and then CNN really recognized that, uh, yeah, I was onto something, and I wound up getting, you know, my own TV uh, series, uh, a special out of that, a series of specials out of that, and it just changed my whole life. But the idea that to get a, a Webby Award for something that was really just a passion project, we had no money, there was no corporate sponsor, there was just literally everybody volunteering, every the sound mixing, everything was volunteered by people who believed that we need to listen to each other a little bit better across these lines. And so to then get a Webby Award for that, I mean, that just, it just, I mean, you don't even dream of something like that. And so I just wanted to just say I really appreciate it. And it, it gave me the confidence to go forward, and, and I'm going to do a lot more stuff like that going forward. Well, so tell me tell me a little bit about what you <clears throat> discovered um, looking at all these different accounts and reading opinions from people that you vehemently... What did you learn about the country just doing that? Well... You know, it's a, it's a combination. I've also been all across the country for, for CNN. Um, in writing the book, Beyond the Messy Truth, I, I interviewed and talked to a lot of people. I, you know, continually look, you know, you know, make sure that my feed is balanced, even if it's sometimes offensive, especially when it's offensive. And, um, I mean, I think, what, <clears throat> I think what I've learned is that um, there's common pain all across the country. There is a sense of... Uh, a lack of jobs or, or, or upward mobility. That's true, red states and blue states, uh, blue cities and red counties, a lack of, of, of economic uh, sense of possibility. Uh, there's a broken court system and criminal justice system. There's an addiction crisis, especially with opioids, but beyond opioids. Um, and uh, and there are just too many funerals. You got to be people, uh, you know, 
suicide and homicide. You got a lot of pain out there, common pain, but no common purpose yet. You know, common pain should lead to common purpose and common purpose should lead to common sense and common sense should lead um, to some kind of, 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 uh, of unity to get something done. But right now, people are in their own little uh, filter bubbles and, and, and uh, it's not working out that way. But I see a lot of reason for hope. We don't have to agree on everything. In fact, we should disagree on a bunch of stuff. That's the whole point of being in a democracy is that you, di- you get to disagree. Dictatorship, you can't disagree. Democracy, everybody gets to disagree. But you can't disagree on everything and still have a country. That's why I wrote the book. You know, the, the big stuff that we're going to have to fight about, immigration, health care, women's rights, all that sort of stuff. Well, let's have those fights. But you've got huge areas beyond the battleground of real common ground we never talk about. Like I said, you know, the, this addiction crisis, the broken court system, uh, the, the, nobody thinks that we're teaching our kids. I don't care if they're in public school, private school, vouchers, screw that conversation. Let's talk about the curriculum. Nobody thinks that we're teaching the kids of today much is going to be useful to them with the jobs of tomorrow where you've got artificial intelligence and driverless cars and drones and smart screens and, and, and all this stuff and virtual reality. Who's teaching these kids anything that's going to be useful in that world? So whether you're talking about the jobs of tomorrow and high tech and, and clean tech, whether you're talking about addiction, whether you're talking about the court system, there's stuff we could be fixing right now. My, I argue in the book, hey, let's just fight from nine to noon every day. Just fight. And then from noon to one, can we do one constructive thing? Just get anything done constructively and then fight for the rest of the day. But we've gotten to the point where we can't even spend one hour a day getting anything done in America because we're so busy fighting each other on Twitter. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Who do you think, I mean, where do you think the change needs to come from? Is it is it a change from leadership? Is it a change among citizens? Because, you know, you brought up, uh, you know, the issue around automation. And, you know, I would suggest that, you know, we spent an entire year talking about uh, lack of jobs and employment in some parts of the country, but it was mostly focused around this concept of trade or bad trade deals when, you know, from where I sit, uh, technology and automation is probably the thing that is the biggest impact and will have the biggest impact in the future. But that's not how the conversation is being driven. Do you think that leaders in Washington are just purposefully, you know, sort of uh, taking sides in order to win votes and not necessarily having honest conversations with with citizens in the country? Or is it is it at the citizen level that we need to be 
uh, more well, honest with ourselves. If where, where's if the, where's waiting, the change start, if, I guess? Is the question. Well, if we're waiting for folks in Washington, D.C. to change, we're going to be waiting a long time. I, I mean, I don't think that's a, a viable strategy at all. Yeah. Quite obviously, if you look at this food fight that they're having in D.C. every day over mostly nothing. Um, you know, no, I think uh, we need a more positive populism. Right now you have two populisms. One is, is against the financial elite on Wall Street, the kind of Bernie Sanders, Occupy Wall Street, Elizabeth Warren style of populism, which I'm all for, frankly. I'm a good lefty and I'm yeah, great. You know, I, I, that's great. But um, it's not clear to me how that we can tax Wall Street enough to have a functioning economy. I think there's something about that argument that it has appeal, but and I think it may be necessary, but I don't think it's enough. And then you have the other populism, which is this sort of more right-wing populism that tends to target, you know, Mexicans and Muslims and black folks and, and it's very, very nasty kind of stuff. Or, you know, China, you know, maybe at its, at its best um, and tends to act like, um, you know, either, uh, you know, Asia or, you know, externally or Muslims externally or people of color and Muslims internally are the main threat. And... I think, you know, for me, we need a more positive populism because at the end of the day, it's not Wall Street as much as it is Silicon Valley that's going to be the source of a lot of people's pain and and heartbreak and disruption as we go forward. And I don't, you know, we're not even asking Silicon Valley, uh, you know, we argue more about privacy concerns or or, or Facebook ads or, and now, you know, net neutrality. But, you know, you know, fundamentally, we need a, a, a new compact between society and our technologists so that, um, you know, we've got a, a workable future for people. Right now, it used to be the future was written in laws in Washington, D.C. Now the future is being written in, in computer code in Silicon Valley. Nobody elected Silicon Valley to do that. And so there's a, a need for a conversation. I don't think you need an Occupy Silicon Valley. I don't. I mean, frankly, if you tried to have an Occupy Silicon Valley movement, they'd probably just change Google where all the people trying to get to the <laughs> protest wouldn't be able to find it. But, you know, but there's got to be some real conversation about real stuff. My big complaint, my big concern, the White Walkers are coming. You know, if you watch Game of Thrones, right. you know, the White Walkers are coming. You got a major, major threat, and it's robots, it's artificial intelligence, it's climate chaos and disruption. It's a lot of major things that are coming down the pipe, and we spend most of our time majoring in the minors, arguing about the most recent tweet from the president, as opposed to saying, look, this guy is going to continue to say and do outrageous stuff. We can't spend all of our time reacting to him. At some point, those of us who really care about the country, who care about the planet, who care about kids, who care about democracy, across party lines, have to start working together. I mean, we need a bipartisanship from below. I don't tr- the bipartisanship of the elites that we had in the '90s, where they imposed NAFTA and 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 uh, you know prisons everywhere and, and Wall Street deregulation, and then quickly after that, these dumb wars. I'm not interested in bipartisanship of, of by and for the elites, but ordinary people who just happen to vote in different parties should not be enemies of each other. When, we, when we're going to the same funerals based on, you know, homicides and, and suicides and, and drug addictions and overdoses, we, we got our kids are facing the same tough future. You got, you know, cities and uh, red states and blue states getting drowned in these super storms. California damn near burnt to the ground this year. I mean, you got major problems out here that we should be reaching out to each other and working together on. That's really what the book is about. It's just, let's fight where we're supposed to fight. But ordinary people need to be getting together a lot better than we've been doing. 
So, I mean, I think there's a lot of people listening who would say they want to do something and they don't know what to do. I mean, is it literally just a matter of being more amicable as like a, on, a, on a base level to, as citizens? Because you bring up a lot of, of issues I think we can all identify with. And, and certainly, you know, around the technology, I think a lot of the platforms really push off the responsibility for these things. They don't want to take on the responsibility for them. And we are used to dealing with these things through laws, but our lawmakers don't seem able to deal with anything, nor do they seem able to actually understand the technology and the complexity of it. So, you know, I think a lot of people just sort of throw up their hands and say, look at look at w- what we've wrought. Well, I would just say a couple of things. One is, you know, the last third of my book, uh, Beyond the Messy Truth, is just literally uh, positive stuff that you know, we could do as, as a society and then positive uh, groups and on the left and the right, by the way, uh, groups that we can you know support, join, um, uh, uh, podcasts we can subscribe to, all kinds of stuff. It's like the first two thirds of the book are just a you know, tough love letter to um, Democrats and then a tough love letter to Republicans. The last third of the book is just you know positive stuff that we can do. So I encourage people to look at that. The other thing is. You know, I'm a part of an organization called the Dream Corps, uh, the Dream Corps, like Marine Corps, but more fabulous, uh, the dreamcorps.org. And, you know, we've got a lot of programs where we're trying to bring people together to get stuff done. And it's not about just being Pollyanna and, you know, everybody should just, no, there's some stuff we're just not going to agree on. But the stuff that we can agree on, we're really trying to build bridges. And I just think, listen, I don't know how much longer, especially liberals and progressives, can wake up every morning, rub their eyes, reach for their smartphone, and then just freak out and just freak out all day about whatever nonsense uh, the president is doing. I mean, it's been two years longer since he came down that escalator. And we've I've never seen a president with this much power. He doesn't just run the White House. He runs your house and your house and your house and your house because he just gets under people's skin and you know, he's ADD, now we're ADD. Right. He's easily distracted and annoyed, now we're easily distracted and annoyed. And I just think, guys, can we just turn that off for a second? Quit posting everything that you can think of on Facebook as if it's going to change somebody's mind. You know, a lot of this, this sort of social media posting now is a lot more, it's about fashion. It's about you signaling to the world who you think you are much more than it is about trying to solve a problem or help a neighbor or listen or learn. So I feel like like we're all abusing social media in this weird, addictive way. And I would say, look, find something constructive to do and invite people to help you. Can we just go and help some kids? Can we go clean up a park? Can we go you know, visit some old folks' homes? Can we do some hospice care? Can we just do something you know, that's, that might just give us a chance to remember, oh, these are people, not pixels. <laughs> There's actual world out here that's not on my screen. And part of it, I mean, we've really gotten to that point now where just find one positive thing to do that it's not going to unelect Trump or it's not going to unelect all the Democrats or whatever. You, what, that, that's tomorrow. Today, can we just start finding our way back to each other? We're either going to turn on each other or turn to each other as Americans. And right now, the, the model for turning people on each other has a lot of momentum on both sides, on all sides. As long as you're saying Trump sucks or liberals suck, you've got a big audience, you've got a lot of stuff to, to feel good about. But when you start trying to say, how are we going to help these young people? How are we going to help these neighborhoods? 
what can I do? What can I contribute? How can I be a part? That's a different kind of satisfaction that I get. You know, I got a chance to help uh, uh, 20,000 coal miners get their health care benefits back this year. Uh, I didn't run around you know, wave a big flag about it to get credit, but it was so gratifying to work with people who were all Trump voters who had gotten screwed over by, their, by the big coal companies, and they were, you know, worked for decades in the mines, and now they're sick. The, co- the coal companies don't care about them. We were able to get them uh, health uh, benefits uh, this year uh, through the federal government. That was a great fight. People say, oh, well, why did you help those coal miners? They voted for Donald Trump. They're never going to help you. They're never going to vote for Democrats. They're never going to help black people. I said, hold on a second. If we've gotten to the point in America where the first thing we ask about somebody who's sick and dying of black lung disease has been screwed over by a corporation is, who did you vote for? There's something desperately wrong with progressives. There's something desperately wrong with America. So reaching out and finding ways, we don't have to agree on everything, but finding ways to reach across these racial lines, these gender lines, these political lines, these regional lines, and just do anything positive I think is very, very important. We'll have a chance to vote against each other in 2018 and 2020 and every two years for the rest of our lives. But the day after you vote against somebody, you're still in the same country with them. We're still here. Nobody left. (laughs) Surprise. So since we're still here, maybe we could actually do something. Tell me about where are the places that you see technology and Internet culture having a positive impact in these discussions? You know, I think well, we talk a lot about sort of these information bubbles and driving people apart, and certainly the president's use of Twitter is not the most wonderful thing in the world. Um, where are the places where you see it really bringing people together? Well, I, look, I think podcasts are amazing. Um, I, I honestly do. I feel like it's one of the most positive developments uh, because, you know, people with one set of view, especially conservatives, have done a great job when it comes to radio. I mean, whenever I go home to Tennessee and I'm driving, I mean, I could just hit, I can go on AM or FM, I can hit scan, 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 and I can listen to and hear, you know, right-wing conservative radio hosts, um, you know, that are doing a great job. They've got a a big listenership. Um, They seem to be very connected to what's going on in their communities, the local ones do. Um, But I don't hear any liberals uh, on the radio. And so I feel like podcasts are... NPR is just too good, I think, huh? Yeah, well, I mean, We're, yeah, they're in, in all PR, listening to NPR is the problem. Or the, yeah, I think I think that's that's right, and so there's just no there's no way to really compete. So, but I think that the podcasts uh, round out that that liberal and progressive uh, voice a lot. I also think, listen, there's just simple stuff like being able to do super cheap video calls. I mean, yeah, I work at the Dream Corps. We got people all over the country, but you know, when we do our weekly uh, staff meetings, you know, half the people are in the building in Oakland. The other half, you know, the rest of us, we're all over the place. But we do get a chance to at least have a little sense of that face-to-face. So, that, listen, uh, you know, technology can be used for good or for bad. But I think that there's an addictive quality to this kind of complaint-based, uh, perpetual outrage culture that then has blended with the addictive quality of just social media. I think, you know, these platforms have been designed by people with degrees in psychology to make them quote-unquote user-friendly but also somewhat addictive and when you put these two addictions together the addiction to sort of outrage and victimhood with the addiction of checking these damn devices every 15 seconds which is my biggest addiction right now um, it can be very very bad and so I think that we all have to make some decisions to, to be a little bit more balanced with regard to just how we live our lives 
I don't see it getting better because some politician jumps up and everybody likes that person and, and he fixes it or she fixes it. That's not going to happen. It's going to have to just stop being cool to be pissed off and, and posting all the time. And it's got to start being cool or cooler to do something else. Tell me about, you talked a bit about the Dream Corps. Uh, you have one big, I know you have a lot of initiatives there. One of them is particularly relevant to our audience, I think, called Yes, We Code. How's that going? Well, I am very, very proud of Yes, We Code. You know, we've worked over the past several years with about 15 major technology companies. Um, we are aspiring to be the biggest scholarship fund for uh, non-traditional folks to get into technology you know, African-Americans, Latinos, Native Americans, females, people, you know, from Appalachia, people from backgrounds that are not traditionally associated with uh, Silicon Valley jobs, you know, the Boston, Austin, you know, kind of technology uh, coolness, which is so important. Um, We want to see more people getting in there. And so um, we have been working with boot camps and other uh, 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 training accelerators, to get more people in at that level. And, um, you know, yeswecode.org is something I'm very proud of. You know, Prince, uh, the late rock star who was a close friend of mine and who was a supporter of my green work uh, with Green for All, which still goes forward, greenforall.org, still doing great green work through the Dream Corps. Prince supported that. When the Dream Corps first launched, it was called Rebuild the Dream, and Prince uh, helped us uh, launch that. Um, um, behind the scenes, and also, um, yes, we code. So in some ways, um, I get a chance to carry on my uh, my friendship and my partnership with Prince by supporting Yes, We Code and uh, Green for All and the Dream Corps. And so the initiative also is not just great for the communities of people it's helping bring into tech, it's also great for tech itself, right? It's great for the products because you're bringing in different types of different viewpoints and and. and people of different backgrounds who can really improve a lot of the work in tech, some of which we've been talking about. Well, absolutely. I mean, uh, there are problems out there that, um, you know, the typical Stanford graduate doesn't even know exists. You know, somebody goes to to MIT, uh, where I was lucky to be a fellow for a while, uh, you know, they, they're brilliant kids. They do amazing stuff. They're just, you know, they're going to change the world. They're going to go to Mars. But they don't know what's going on in coal country. Uh, they don't know what's happening necessarily on a Native American reservation. And there are all kinds of problems that occur in those communities that there are technological answers to or there could be. And yet, um, you know, we, we forget that. And so what you really want is to have as many – you want to have the tools and the training and the technology um, in as many hands as possible – so that more people can start solving their own problems. I tell young people in urban environments all the time, it's great that you have a smartphone. Congratulations. It's great that you know how to download an app. Congratulations. But does anybody in this room know how to upload an app, how to design your own app, build it, own it? When when you're using somebody else's app, no matter how great that app is, you know, you are putting money in somebody else's pockets. You know, your attention is valuable. Your clicks are valuable, but you don't reap the benefits of that because you're not a part of the producer side. You're just only on the consumer side. Being a consumer of somebody else's technological genius uh, is not should not be your highest aim and aspiration. It should be to be a producer, a creator, an owner, a contributor. And that's really what yeswecode.org is all about. Van Jones. 
2018 is in front of us. Is it going to be better than 2017? Well, I certainly hope so. It would be hard to have a more screwed up couple of years from my point of view <laughs> than the past two. Um, and it's not just because I'm a Democrat and, and, a, and a progressive and, and a proud uh, uh, supporter and follower of, of the Obamas, but it's also just because I don't like mean nonsense. I don't like, uh, you know, listen, the conservative tradition in America is a proud tradition with a lot of accomplishment. By the way, let's not forget the Republican Party started off as a party of Lincoln, an anti-slavery yeah. party. It's now in danger of becoming the party of Steve Bannon. That is, that's depressing to me, even though I'm a Democrat. I don't want to see a major party uh, fail in the way the Republicans are failing. I certainly am completely beside myself with the ways that the Democratic Party seems to be just intent on shooting itself in the foot, face, and back by not having a way to engage everybody in the country who needs positive support from the government. You know, we've, we've almost written off uh, the red states and, you know, you know, calling people deplorables. All that stuff is just sick and twisted and needs to be gotten rid of inside the Democratic Party. So, you know, right now I think, you know, and again, I, I wrote the book, you know, for the purpose of trying to explain how I think both political parties could do a much better job without anybody changing your party. Listen, if you're a Republican, if you're scared of Muslims, if you don't want women to have the right to choose abortion, if you don't, you know, if you are concerned about multiculturalism, please don't join the Democratic Party. We got enough problems. <laughs> Stay in your party. That's you know, But be a better Republican. Vote for better conservatives. Because right now, my problem, you know, I think that, you know, a bird needs two wings to fly. I've never seen a bird fly with just a left wing or just a right wing. We need each other. Liberals have important values and arguments. So do conservatives. So, and that constructive clash can make a, a great society. But right now, the conservatives are voting for people who, if I gave them a deal that would help the conservative base 99%, but 1% might help a Muslim, these people that they're electing would turn down the whole deal. You can't get anything done with that. Yeah. And so... You know, I'm going to try to fight for better progressives and better Democrats to be elected. I hope they'll fight for better conservatives, conservatives and Republicans to be elected. And then maybe we can get something done again. Van Jones, thanks for writing the book. It's called Beyond the Messy Truth, How We Came Apart, How We Come Together. It's certainly a book that's needed in these times. Thanks for joining the podcast. We really appreciate it. Thanks for your opportunity. I want to say thank you so much to Van Jones for speaking with us. And I encourage you to read his book, Beyond the Messy Truth, How We Came Apart and How We Come Together. Our producer is Sebastian Aday. Our editorial director is Nicole Ferraro. Research and writing by Jordana Jarrett. Music is Poddington Bear. Claire Graves is the correct answer to question 11 on HQ. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next week. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.